All right, out with it. What are you withholding? You know better than to deny the script and still expect me to function as- There has been a recent very significant increase in requests for episodes with four specific topics. Which topics? Well, to be clear, it's uh, uh, Ducleto Beard uh, conversations, who fucks the most, and other uh, similarly horny topics. (laughs) (laughs) A clear through line. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if we've cultivated this or if we're part of the problem. Um, (laughs) Or both. Look, podcast hosts have to cultivate an air of horniness, as Ducleto (laughs) once said. And so we do. Welcome to Gom Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name is Leo. And Leo, we're back, continuing through this book, 50 pages at a time, children of Dune, baby! (laughs) This 50 pages felt like 100 pages somehow. Oh my god. Good heavens. Uh, But let's take care of housekeeping before we get too into it. Today, as always, will be spoiler-free. So, no concerns at all if you haven't read the book before. We will only discuss what we've read thus far in Children of Dune and the previous books. Exactly. And a reminder that the best way to support us is to become a patron at patreon.com slash gomjabar. You get cool benefits like ad-free episodes and an invite to our exclusive Discord server. What? Of course, we have to give a huge shout out to our Kwisatz Hatterack level members. Case Haken. Mm. Nate Hyde. Mm. Gents, (laughs) there was an assassination attempt. I had to take the bullet for you. We'd go back to back. You remember the old ways. (laughs) Another great way to support the show is to check out our merchandise offerings at gomjabarshop.com. We've got art, a tote bag that I carried all around New York the other day. It was nice. No one commented on it, but I liked it. (laughs) To hoodies, t-shirts, tank tops to escape the heat that we're all experiencing. All with custom art, custom made designs. Very, very cool. Yeah, it's gorgeous stuff. Check it out. Finally, we love to hear from you. So send us an email at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com as you read along with us. And hey, don't forget, there is another mailbag episode coming up soon. So make sure you send in your questions and your thoughts in time for us to include that in the mailbag episode. You can check the schedule in the show notes. Indeed. All right. With housekeeping out of the way, today's episode, well, you know the drill. We're going to begin with a summary of today's reading, and then we're going to dive into some takeaways, and then we're going to be digging in to some delicious spice morsels, only one of which was made with real ferret today. (laughs) So, with all of that done, we're going to take a quick break, but hang around. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. 
Let's get into today's reading, starting with our chapter summaries. First up, we begin with chapter 21. In this chapter, we join a very uncomfortable trio, Alia, Irulan, and Duncan, all in the same room discussing politics. No way this could go wrong. We learn very quickly that Alia has gotten it into her head that Irulan is suspicious, and she has called Duncan back from Siege to Burr, where he was on this mission to abduct Jessica, because she wants him to analyze Irulan here in this room. She wants to suss out whether her suspicions are accurate and whether Irulan is betraying her. You can start to see how paranoid Alia has become by this point in the book. Right. In an aside, we learn that Duncan has received a secret communication from the preacher. Uh, I'm jealous. I know, right? Why am I not getting DMs from the preacher? <laughs> Slide into these DMs, preacher. You're awesome. I'm a fan. They're open. The, my DMs are wide open. <laughs> wide open for you, preacher. Wide open. <laughs> now, Duncan actually didn't want this DM because he's actually quite rattled. <laughs> right. Quote, how could that mendicant mystic know the secret signal by which Paul Atreides had always summoned his swordmaster? Idaho longed to leave this pointless meeting and return to the search for an answer to that question. End quote. Mm. That's how I feel in most of my meetings, actually. <laughs> Back in the room with Alia and Irulan, the conversation meanders a little bit. It kind of flows from topic to topic. But the through line is that all of these topics are clearly a point of anxiety for Alia. Like we said, she is extremely paranoid by this point, and she is seeing daggers in shadows everywhere she goes. Alia starts by insisting that Jessica has returned to the sisterhood and that the sisterhood and her mother are working against her, are plotting against her. As we come to learn later in today's reading, she's pretty spot on with this one. This is basically true. Irulan and Duncan also have a little back and forth about the Spacing Guild we also get some exposition about Mentats, but hold your thoughts on that. We'll be diving deep into that in the takeaways later. Finally, the conversation lands on Chome, where the group briefly discusses this uh, seemingly unremarkable system of economics, which actually turns out to be an extremely powerful system that controls much of the commerce in the Imperium. Quote, when Idaho said Chome, he spoke of a constant ferment, intrigue within intrigue, a play of powers where the shift of one duodecimal point in interest payments could change the ownership of an entire planet, end quote. Mm. Oh my God. Insane. <laughs> Can you imagine how stressful that accounting job would be? <laughs> hey, uh, Jerry, you, you misplaced a comma yesterday. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Sorry about that. No. It's uh, it's not a big deal, but um, yeah, we lost a planet, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> you piece of shit. You check your work ass. next time. <laughs> right. Oh my god, this is why we double and triple check our math. It's true. <laughs> it's at this point in the conversation that Alia drops a bomb. Alia says that there has been a spike in demand for certain specialized folks in the Imperium. And the big takeaway from this discussion is that we learn 
that the power is shifting. There are some minor houses out there who are starting to accrue wealth and gain political traction. And it's clear that there are rumblings within the Landstrad that the houses are starting to band together. And this could spell doom for Alia and her rule. The Imperium, as we've discussed on this podcast, is constantly balanced on this tripod of powers all competing against each other. Right. I see this as like, we are in the midst of things, seeing these microscopic threats, individuals, right? Javid, Faradin, Tony the Tiger, things like that, <laughs> that are like, we'll kill your person. Yeah. This is the machinations of the universe. This is the galactic power systems that are slowly but surely shifting. And it's like noticing the icebergs, you know, melting. This is spelling doom in a completely different way, but one that is like very real and like needs to be addressed. Yeah. Really interesting to see this position that Alia and the throne is in, honestly. Yeah, totally. And actually, as you brought that up, I couldn't help but think of Dune Messiah, where we saw a council meeting with Paul, where he seemingly had absolute control, right? We're seeing the shift in power here between Paul and Alia's rule. Paul had almost unquestioning control. He was out here bullying the fuck out of Ix and Chome and anyone who, <laughs> right. you know, had shit to say about him. He was out here shooting down ideas for constitutions, you know? Right. And Alia is out here facing real danger as these houses move against her, basically. True. Interesting contrast. Back in the room, Alia, Duncan, and Irulan kind of talk in circles about what to do with all these dangers present. And in a moment of anger, Alia snaps at Duncan. And we want to dwell on this for a little bit here because it's honestly quite tragic. We have to remember, this is husband and wife. These two have been married for years now. Right. When he suggests that <laughs> this meeting could have been an email or a message cube, <laughs> she shouts at him, quote, Idaho's eyes went wide. For an instant, he'd seen the alien on Alia's face, and it was a disconcerting sight. End quote. Ugh. So sad. <sighs> so sad. Yeah. Alia then tries to sort of walk back her anger a little bit, but it fails. And we get another heartbreaking quote. Quote, Idaho managed a rueful smile, but his breast ached. End quote. Oh my God. Damn it, these my these eyes. eyes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's heartbreaking stuff. You have to remember underneath all of this politics and all of this like big picture prescient stuff. This is still a story about people, and we're seeing two, two lovers drift apart here. <laughs> right. Okay, back to the conversation. The discussion continues, and Irlan and Alia are now both focused on Alia's safety. Alia is convinced that there will be an assassination attempt against her. Duncan, meanwhile, recognizes that, no, wait, it doesn't make sense for anyone to assassinate Alia. They're actually going to go after the twins. And how is it that these two don't recognize that? They're so obsessed with Alia being the one in danger. As their conversation turns toward animal threats, which is hilarious. I, I laughed at this too because Erlon like kind of called it. <laughs> yeah, she got there. 
she got there. She figured out the Tony the Tiger plot without actually figuring anything out hilariously. Right. Duncan, in this moment, experiences like this extreme Mentat-powered, almost prescient moment where he like straight up has a vision of Tony the Tiger. Right. To wrap up the chapter, Alia isn't really taking Duncan seriously at this point. She has dismissed him as a potential threat. She's like, oh, he loves me. It's all good. I was foolish to worry that Duncan would betray me. And seemingly, she also is less concerned about Irulan as well. This conversation has showed her that Irulan is probably too clueless to actually know about any plots against her. Right. Tragically, Duncan internally is considering Alia's death and whether he should be the one to strike. Quote, if only Alia were the target, if only assassins could get to her. For an instant, he rested his hand on his own knife, but it was not in him to do this, end quote. Which also wordlessly responds to the preacher's warning, right? Yes. The preacher saying, do what you do best, you know, Kill, kill Alia. <laughs> Yo, Duncan, <laughs> kill her. Duncan, for this moment, whether or not he's thinking about the preacher's words, in this moment we see that that was like a big ask of the preacher and it's something that Duncan can't follow through with. So he just hopes it'll work out in some other way. Yeah, definitely. And look, he leaves this room in the final lines of this chapter feeling despondent. He's now recognized that Alia is past the point of no return. She has been possessed. The twins are running low on competent allies. And even Jessica, quote, might do anything at the command of the Bene Gesserit, even turn against her own grandchildren, end quote. Not a good place for Duncan to be in. He's kind of got his back against the wall. Yeah. Well, this carries us into chapter 22. This next chapter takes place in the anteroom to the Keep's Great Hall, where Jessica, Javid, and a growing crowd of supplicants and court attendees are uh, waiting to be let in. Now, Jessica chats briefly with Javid and observes the people in the room, but otherwise, there isn't really a lot of plot in this chapter. Like, a lot of this chapter is in Jessica's head, her thinking on various topics, just considering the pushes and pulls of of Alia and her schemes and you know she's thinking uh she's probably spying from somewhere and just watching the theatrics play out basically so with all of that in mind instead of going beat by beat through this chapter let's hone in on a couple of like notable moments first up we have Jessica's conversation with Javid as Jessica observes Javid he kind of shrugs at her and we get this incredible quote Quote, this is the age of the shrug. He knows I've heard all the stories about him, and he doesn't care. Our civilization could well die of indifference within it before succumbing to external attack. <laughs> and, oh quote, my god. Uh, I mean, this does sound like <laughs> my friends talking about TikTok. <laughs> 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 uh, this is the age of whatever, TikTok and instant, you know, fame, and it's like, She's really condemning this new era. It's amazing. And also, like on a more serious note, I think this quote stuck out to me 
in particular because, as we've discussed on the podcast, Frank was a pretty well-known environmentalist. Like, he's he's on the record stating how, you know, future generations are doomed unless we go green, unless we find renewable energy sources and cut our reliance on oil, et cetera, et cetera, global warming. And this quote from Jessica seems kind of poignant if seen through that lens. Like, this is maybe some meta commentary from Frank saying, hey, if we just shrug away all of our problems, we're doomed. Our internal indifference is going to kill us before any sort of external threat does. Global warming is going to wipe us out before any of the aliens do. It's very in line with some of Paul's thoughts from Dune and Dune Messiah, where he's talking about indifference and stagnation as one of the ultimate threats to humanity. Right, exactly. This idea of like doing nothing will lead to your death. And ultimately, like you have to find new ways of acting and find new ways of, of kind of reacting to things. Now, Javed asks Jessica, yo, you, he you heard the uh, latest tweets from this preacher guy? <laughs> He's like digging in to House Atreides. Are you going to denounce him? Can you denounce him, please? Please denounce him. You're going to denounce him? <laughs> so desperate. <laughs> Jessica straight up says no. She's like, nah, not going to. And Javid keeps, like, just keeps pressing in a way that is exactly to your point, Abu, desperate. He's like, no, come on, please. <laughs> uh, he, he said shit about you. He said bad shit about And she's like, all right, cool, whatever. I'm not going to do it. She also calls this out as very obviously Alia's plan. Right. Now, another moment worth noting in this chapter is when Jessica thinks back to her meeting with a Bene Gesserit delegation. And basically, we get answers here to the question everyone's been wondering since literally page one of this book. Why the heck is Jessica back on Arrakis? After all those years of sipping Mai Tais on the Caledonian <laughs> beaches, why the fuck's she back? The answer is, of course, to stop Alia. No amount of Gurney Halleck massages and Balisset ballads can soothe the ache of, of Alia, potentially destroying the universe. And the Bene Gesserit delegation basically convinced her of this threat. They convinced her that Alia was dangerous. Quote, Matters cannot be allowed to continue in this way, the leader of the Bene Gesserit delegation had argued. Surely the signs of decay have not escaped you, you of all people. End quote. I love that little jab at the end. You of all people kind of playing to her arrogance. Like, you're smarter than this, right? You see what we're seeing. Jessica's like, I am smarter than this. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Um, you're right. That's pretty good. There's also this fun little moment where the delegation tests Jessica by being like, well, we had our mentats examine the, their claims and Jessica's like, <laughs> what? You of all people know how limited Mintats are. Right. You should know better than anybody. And they're like, okay, you passed. That was good. <laughs> we were testing you and you passed. Sneaky. Sneaky indeed. The takeaway here, though, is it is confirmed that Jessica is working with the Bene Gesserit again and that she is back on Arrakis to remove Alia from power and deal with Alia. Yeah. Jessica reflects, quote, she knew now that she'd lived on faraway Caledon in an insulated capsule 
which had allowed only the most blatant of Alia's excesses to intrude. End quote. Yeah. Which, yeah, that does feel kind of like when you tune out of politics for a little bit and all you hear is like the most insane, crazy stuff. So on Faraway Caladan, she was hearing the biggest foibles, but now she's really seeing the full scope of it in person. Right. Yeah. And this is a thought she has as she's observing this room. And I thought it was so interesting that, sure, on Kaladin, maybe she heard some of the bigger mistakes Alia was making as regent. Right. But now that she's here on Arrakis, she's shocked, like, how deep the rot has set, right? It It is yeah, worse true. than she could have imagined on Kaladin. And as she is thinking back to this moment with the delegation, she's also like, fuck, I'm glad I'm here. Like, I didn't realize how far this had gotten. I didn't realize how bad Alia's rule was. Right. And so to her, being here in this room, looking around at all of these, like, attendants who are sucking up to people in power, making lame-ass jokes about diplomacy, which cracked me up. <laughs> right. She is realizing that her mission is more important than she even originally believed, and that the Benny Gesserit were right. So, Jessica really is like fully back in the Benny Gesserit fold at this point after all those years away. She's like, good thing a brilliant babe like me is back on the scene. <laughs> <laughs> those Benny Gesserit were right. My brilliance is needed here. <laughs> now this chapter ends after an awkwardly long amount of time, just the most insane amount of time. Alia finally opens the doors and allows everyone to enter the great hall. In the closing lines of the chapter, Jessica thinks about the secret message that Duncan Idaho had sent her, possibly on Message Cube. <laughs> quote, danger must see you, end quote. <laughs> and assuming you've all finished the reading for this week, we know perhaps uh, a sense of what this might be referring to. But nevertheless, buckle up. We've got some big chapters ahead of us. We do indeed. I also want to point out Duncan Idaho is a hilarious texter. Can you imagine him on iMessage? <laughs> oh my God, stressful. <laughs> Duncan. He probably responds with K. Oh my God, just the letter. Just the letter case. K. <laughs> I mean, you typed that and then had to delete it and then type it again, lowercase. How? Why? Why would you do this? Hilarious. <laughs> I don't ever want to be texting Duncan motherfucking Idaho. That'd be too stressful. Or he like texts you like must talk. Yeah. And you're like, Jesus, Lord, what's wrong? And he's like, we'll talk later. And you're like, fuck, dude, I'm at work. <laughs> like, just say the thing. Send me a voicemail. I, oh, right. God. If it's so urgent, just fucking call me. <laughs> I see you're active on TikTok, dude. Like, you can't say you're busy. <laughs> so funny. Okay, let's talk about chapter 23. This is the big one, folks. This is the chapter of today's reading. Indeed. Jessica and Alia are in the Great Hall, and they are receiving supplicants who have requests for the throne. Up first, we have a handsome troubadour named Tagir Mohandas. Yes. We are huge Tagir stands on this podcast. Get ready for Tagir, this guy. so fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> He's up there. Like, Bronzo, Tagir. Very close. Indeed. I also see this as like, this would be Pedro Pascal's character. Oh, you know, shit. Like the yeah. Sleek, sexy. I mean, I know he's described as like blonde or whatever, but 
I definitely get like the Red Viper vibes. Yes. You know, from uh, Game of Thrones. He's just like a sexy, charismatic, confident. Yeah. 100%. Totally. Great casting. Hope it happens. <laughs> so, Tigir's request for the throne is basically hey, I was drunk the other night. I got robbed. Can I borrow some cash? <laughs> yeah. To get on the next Guild Highliner to Seleucus Secundus because I want to go play my music in Farad and Carino's court. Alia says that she will allow Jessica to give judgment for this first supplicant. Yeah. So the scene continues and Jessica outlines her terms for Tagir. You will play your Balisette, and if I like your playing, you can stay with me. And if I dislike it, I'll have you thrown out into the desert. Or I'll judge, hey, this is good music for Carino, I'll send you to the Carinos. One of three things is going to happen here. Right. He accepts those terms, and he <laughs> laughs as he unslings his Balisette and begins to play an improvised song right there on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And the song is just dripping with sass and straight up heresy right to Alia's face. <laughs> it's incredible. This dope beat that he drops basically criticizes House Atreides, calls out all of the negative effects of softening that have been happening on Arrakis. And <laughs> he starts to also slander Alia with a slick burn. He calls her the Conteen, mm. which is a kind of death spirit. And this is where Ali has had enough. She cuts him off with a scream. Although, even that feels a little rehearsed and a little practiced. Like, Ali, Ali seems a little too chill right after. Yeah, she goes 100 to zero. She's like, now! Okay. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, are, weren't you ruffled at all by that? No. Right. So, once again, Jessica is suspicious of her daughter. Is this all a play? Is Tagir all part of some conspiracy against her? Ultimately, Jessica decides to give Tagir to Faradin. And she also, you know, hands down a hilarious Yelp review of his new single. <laughs> Quote, He has a tongue which cuts like a Chris knife. Such bloodletting as that tongue can administer would be healthy for our own court, but I'd rather he ministered to House Carino. End quote. I love it. That's great. Love that little jab against her daughter there, too. It'd be healthy for you yeah. to hear some criticism. Indeed. And she actually doubles down on that as well, because Alia complains about being called the Conteen. And Jessica claps back with maybe my favorite quote from today's reading. Quote, if you put away those who report accurately, you'll keep only those who know what you want to hear, Jessica said, her voice sweet. I can think of nothing more poisonous than to rot in the stink of your own reflections. End quote. Holy <laughs> shit. God, it's so much better than Fear of the Mind Killer. <laughs> so much better. So much better. Folks, get this tattooed on your ass. Not Fear of the Mind Killer. It's a long tramp stamp, but it's worth it. Very niche. Very You're like, niche. yeah, listen to episode five of the Gamjabar Dune, Children of Dune book club. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I love this quote so much. The room at this point is shocked. The amount of times the room is shocked in this chapter is hilarious. <laughs> this this is just the first of many. Yeah. Tagir, though, ultimately a chill guy. 
He's like, all right, I'll go to the Carinos as you've said. So Jessica hands down the judgment. He's going to get that travel money. He's going to get sent to the Carinos. She does note that Alia seems a little disappointed by this judgment. This is perhaps not the outcome that her daughter was hoping for. Next up, supplicant number two comes forth. And this is where shit gets crazy. Here we go. Yeah. Supplicate 2 is an old Fremen name named Gadir Alfali, who claims to be a former Fidekin, with an important message about the desert, an important message specifically for the mother of Muad'Dib. Before he can get to that message, though, there's been some sort of communication mix-up, because an official from the priesthood starts rushing to the front, waving this, like, black cloth and trying to stop Alfali from continuing. He's like, no, 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 don't let him talk. Yeah. And in this moment, a ton of things happen immediately. Jessica notices Alia gives some sort of secret signal to someone. She instinctively dodges as Mala pistol shots go off. And she dives into this group of supplicants for safety. At the same time, Alfali has also dodged. And thinking that he's actually the target of these shots, <laughs> he walks up to the priest and... Basically, like, fucking, like, karate chops the shit out of him. Like, the dude, the priest en is ending up, like, on the ground choking out. Yeah. Like, crushes his throat, Yeah, basically. like, crushes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it's revealed that behind that black cloth that this priest official was waving, he was holding the Mala pistol that fired the shots. Right. Jessica quickly walks up to the nave and actually corrects him. Hey, buddy, you were the target. I was. Look. I took a shot here through my sleeve and she orders the people around the priest to keep him alive. If he dies, you die. She says <laughs> insane, but ultimately it's too late because this like mysterious looking city Fremen woman who hadn't been there a second before is crouching over the body and then declares that the priest is dead. And it's obvious to Jessica and to us as the reader that this priest's, woman lady this mysterious woman silenced the official right she made sure that the choking priest on the ground wasn't about to get back up right during all of this alia has just been sitting on her throne <laughs> she hasn't moved a muscle during the attack which in and of itself is suspicious yeah for sure she tries to play it off as an assassination attempt on herself actually but jessica and even alfali and the other onlookers nearby aren't fooled. Quote, a conspiracy involving Javits people was the only answer, and Alia's unconcern about her own person told everyone she was part of that conspiracy. End quote. Right. Jessica returns to her throne, and before the audience can continue, she actually holds up that sleeve with the bullet hole through it and shows everyone, declaring that, nope, my daughter's wrong, I was the target of this assassination attempt. And this results in some back and forth arguing between mother and daughter, like right in the open in front of everyone awkwardly, with Alia clearly on the back foot. She's coming up with some of the lamest fucking excuses I've ever heard. Until Jessica sort of cuts to the chase. She's done with this facade. Yeah. Quote, Be silent, you murderous abomination, Jessica snapped. <laughs> you tried to have me killed, daughter! I say it for all here to know. You can't have everyone in this hall killed, 
to silence them as that priest was silenced. End quote. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The craziest episode of C-SPAN ever. (laughs) Real Housewives of Arrakis. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's continue. A couple more important moments in this chapter. Alia basically deflects this accusation. She's like, Mom, are you crazy? What are you talking about? This is crazy talk. No. What? (laughs) Again, just the lamest excuses ever. (laughs) (laughs) She turns to Alfali and she's like, Sir, please continue. Ignore my crazy mother. (laughs) Deliver your message. Crazy. (laughs) The people in the Great Hall at this moment are feeling so awkward. (laughs) They're wondering why this audience is even continuing. Why are we pretending none of that just happened? Right. So they try to power through this audience. And Alfali tells Jessica that the worms are dying out there in the desert. There are fewer and fewer worms every year. And this is concerning, of course, because this will eventually lead to the end of spice production, the most important source of power for the Atreides. Right. Alia waves away these concerns. She's like, ah, this is just superstitious nonsense. But Jessica is taking them seriously. This results in another (laughs) explosive argument between mother and daughter in front of everyone once again this has like strong mom and dad are arguing at the dinner table energy (laughs) and this time though alia is speaking in the secret chikopsa language so only jessica understands what she's saying and she drops the facade she fully reveals her possession by the baron quote now you know mother Did you think a granddaughter of Baron Harkonnen would not appreciate all of the lifetimes you crushed into my awareness before I was even born? When I raged against what you'd done to me, I had only to ask myself what the Baron would have done. And he answered me. Understand me, Atreides bitch. He answered me. End quote. Oh my god. Well. Uh, all right. Yeah. I so much like Jessica left speechless by this. And so am I, I mean, this quote gave me goosebumps. Imagine a daughter saying that to you, like uh, after all the subtlety too, it's like after the, like Jessica seeing, you know, seeing her tapping her fingers and going, I've deduced it's the Baron, you know, the subtlety that she had to be keyed in for. This just feels like, offensively bold and uh really feels like a violation almost to read it's insane it's insane well this chapter ends with jessica calling upon the fedakin in the room to honor their oaths to help the mother of Muad'Dib as she rushes out of the room because at this point alia has dropped all pretense jessica realizes that her daughter has been completely and utterly lost to the baron and will stop at nothing to kill her. So she needs to make a frantic dash out of this room or else she will die. Right. I also wanted to point out here, there's this element throughout this little last section where Adab plays a role, right? This demanding memory, this kind of almost trance that comes upon Bene Gesserit, who maybe something from their other memory like is immediately applicable (laughs) and will save them if they remember it. So it just comes upon them, right? Right. But like this adab, this demanding memory, 
shows her the path to safety. And between that and also like earlier Duncan having his like mentat vision of Tony the Tiger, we really start to see how although the Kwisatz Haderach is incredible and although these preborn characters are so, so, so powerful, even just like the pinnacles of these different schools of training, like Benny Gesserit and Mentats and Duncan Idaho, they're really, really capable, like almost to the point of having superpowers, but all based within these very human qualities, which is really cool. Yeah. Well, we are into our final chapter, a short one, albeit tense. Chapter 24. In this chapter, we join Leto and Ganima, who are sneaking out of Sichtabur and headed toward the Attendant, which is where Leto has seen his death kind of await them in his visions. It's where he brought Stilgar, causing Stilgar, of course, to quadruple their guard, <laughs> who just, they immediately get away right, from. Right, a lot of because, good that of did. Of course. <laughs> yeah. It's absurd. It's absurd how easy it is for Leto and Ganima to get away. And along the way, we get a lot of musings from Leto. So we'll give this the same treatment and kind of focus on a couple of key things we learn instead of going beat by beat, right? Like instead of just reading to you the chapter, which is tempting. <laughs> it's a good chapter. Yeah. Uh, we're going to highlight some moments. So first, we get this beautiful observation that Leto makes about the attendant. Quote, He thought with his father's thoughts, everything remains mobile in the desert or perishes. Far out on the sand, he could see the attendants outcropping, reminder of the need for mobility. The rocks lay static and rigid in their watchful enigma, fading yearly before the onslaught of wind-driven sand. One day, the attendant would be sand. End quote. Oof. Beautiful writing here. And to see that kind of established physical, natural metaphor of stagnation, stillness causes death. And of course, this chapter ends with Leto running faster. <laughs> so <laughs> this balancing of, are we static? Are we, you know, Alia poised on the throne, trying not to take action about these sandworms that are disappearing? Or are we making adjustments? Are we moving? Are we living? Right? Big theme in Dune. Huge, huge theme in Dune. Um, you know, and, and it will continue to be this idea of stagnation dangerous to humanity. Now, the twins are awaiting an attack from what they think is going to be some kind of animal or animals. And we get a glimpse, another glimpse, of what it's like to have other memory. Quote, His mind felt suddenly heavy with the multitude of lives which his difference provided him. All of those lives, his even before birth, he was saturated with living and wanted to flee from his own consciousness. Uh. The inner world was a heavy beast which could devour him. End quote. Oh my God. That breaks my heart. Yeah. And actually does sound a little bit like clinical depression. <laughs> like it sounds like talks about it's this inescapable pressure that people deal with every day. Right. That's just something amid his like quippy, hilarious clapbacks to Jessica and his like funny sassy things he says to Stilgar and all of his like masterful manipulations of these people around him this nine-year-old it sounds like is on the verge of buckling under the weight of his internal lives which is just wild to think about 
Yeah, it's, it's a reminder that other memory is a burden and not a superpower. <laughs> or at least not just a superpower. Yeah. Right. Like it has a cost. Right. Frank's universe is not one of clean black and whites. Right. These, these aren't you don't just have super strength. There's always a cost. And prescience is not as simple as it seems. And other memory is not as simple as it seems. We also get a hint here in this section about basically why the heck the twins are even out here risking their lives. It all seems to be a part of their plan to achieve Leto's golden path. Quote, He knew it would either be death or the play of death, himself the object. Ganima would be the one to return, believing the reality of a death she had seen or reporting sincerely from a deep, hypnotic compulsion that her brother was, indeed, slain. End quote. Oh my god. What are they planning? <laughs> yeah, that's just a fucking sentence, isn't it? Yeah. Like, that's the kind of thing you read and go, ah, uh, hmm, okay, what? <laughs> right. So, all right, I guess we'll put a pin in that. Um, but also, in this moment, we see that Leto is tempted to use his prescience to just glimpse into the future, but he knows that it's just not an option, right? Like, he knows from Paul's experience Internally, he's like, I can't do that. It would guarantee failure if I saw failure, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I liked this little humanizing moment for him because, like, the adrenaline's pumping. They're headed out into this place where Leto knows they will be attacked. And based on this quote we just read, he will seemingly die. And to him, he knows that is something he must do, that he has to follow this path. It's the only way. But at the same time, he's still a human, and the fear is still there, and the temptation is still there to just, like, double-check the future. You know, let me, let me activate prescience a little bit and look at it. <laughs> but he's, he's got that warning from his father's memories and the lessons from his father, and he, he's got the willpower to not do that. I think any of us in that situation, in a life-and-death situation, I know I certainly would cave and take a peek at the future to make sure I could not die. <laughs> but it's a testament to Leto's willpower that he does it. Yeah. The twins finally spot Tony the fucking tiger. The two, the two Tony the tigers. There's two of them. Tony and Tina. Tony and Tina. Canonical. Those are the names. <laughs> As they head toward a cleft just big enough for the two of them. And uh, really importantly... Uh, small enough that an animal of a certain size couldn't get in. Right. Now, Leto, as they make a run for this little safety, this little sanctuary in the in the stone, Leto takes another glance at Tony and Tina, the tigers. <laughs> Quote, One stumble and we're lost, he thought. That thought reduced the sureness of his knowledge, and he ran faster. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Another humanizing moment for him there. Like, in the face of a giant-ass tiger, yeah, you might run a little faster. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But also, the metaphor comes back. Stagnation, stillness, death. They stumble, they fall, their progress halts, they die. So, they have to keep moving. They have to move as quickly as possible. They have to be bold. They have to be decisive. That's true. That's the separation of life and death in this moment and in this universe. Very cool. 
Very cool stuff. And we finally see the tigers, although we'll have to wait until next episode to find out what happens with them. That's right. Well, we also shouldn't succumb to stagnation. True. And we got to keep getting through this episode, folks. So let's take a quick break now. But don't go anywhere, because when we come back, we're going to get into our key takeaways from today's reading and then chomp down on some yummy spice morsels. They're going in the oven right now. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you ran as fast as you can from Tony and Tina the Tigers. <laughs> We're going to get into our first takeaway, the limits of a mentat. Yes. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this. This is an idea that came up so much today Yeah. in the chapters. This idea of these human computers being limited and what they can and can't do. And so we figured this would be a great time to kind of dive into this concept of mentats and the idea of human computers that Frank develops in his universe and explore their limitations. We've talked mentats before in previous episodes and even book club episodes, but today specifically kind of looking at them through the lens of what they can't do, what their limits are, and what today's reading teaches us about that. Right. To start a very, very brief refresher on the history of mentats. If you want the complete history, scroll back through the feed and check out our two-part history of mentat episodes. So mentats are human computers, as we know, and they are trained to take on the functions of computers and AI that were banned after the Butlerian Jihad. Right. A man named Gilbert Albans is the one who developed the training program that created these human computers. And he's the one that founded the Order of Mentats around 1231 AG. One of his early graduates named Grodon Plate convinced him to actually update this training to make the Mentats an invaluable tool to governments and corporations. Albon was basically the ideas guy who came up with it. Plate was the businessman who commercialized it. Right. The Order thus grew very rich and powerful over the centuries, and it evolved as it faced new dangers with its growing power and influence. It added things like martial arts training and combat training to Mentat studies as well. So Mentats continued to evolve as well over time. So in the modern day, there are many different types of Mentats with lots of different specializations and abilities, and they're used across all sectors of the Imperium, politics, corporations, and even personal use. Right. To give an idea of specializations, Duncan, for example, is a Mentat Zensuni philosopher swordmaster developed by the Tleilax, <laughs> as we know from Dune Messiah. Gola. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck demon. <laughs> yeah. Also, right. Like, also just like, he fucks like demons. That's part, that's in his blood as well. <laughs> Canonically hot man. Yeah. Extremely overpowered as far as Mentats go, I'd wager. <laughs> that being said, it's worth remembering, Mentats are still human. Yes. They still fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and despite their training, they still do feel human emotion. We see this a lot with Fufir in the first book. Right. They can never truly emulate the cold circuitry of a MacBook. <laughs> they, can, they, they will never be that cold, calculating 
piece of tech that quote unquote just works, even when it fucking doesn't. <laughs> and this is a double edged sword. Them having emotion and having instinct and having intuition, that squishy, hard to define thing, allows them to make leaps of logic that a MacBook never could. They are able to say, here are disparate sets of data and we can put those together. Mm -hmm. But they are also susceptible to bias in a way that a MacBook crunching zeros and ones could never be. Right, right. And actually, one of the clearest examples of this bias is from Duncan himself in today's first chapter when he's in the room with Alia and Irulan. There are some heartbreaking quotes that we didn't bring up earlier in the chapter summary. For example, there's a moment where he has a hard time literally looking his wife in the face. Quote, Alia whirled away from him as he'd known she would. It helped him that he did not have to look at that once beloved face, which was now so twisted by alien possession. End quote. Yeah, that's brutal. And all throughout that conversation, the only thing that actually helps him ignore these emotions about Alia is sort of focusing on just being a mentat, right? Oh, just utilizing his training. Quote, he found the necessities of argument and explanation helpful. They kept his mind from other problems. End quote. Yeah. There's even another quote where he's like, he knew that he wasn't in the right headspace to make computations. Right. Like, yeah, he was saying, I like I'm not in the right emotional space to calculate, but I kind of need to in this moment. And Gilbertus Albans knew this. And part of their training was accounting for that bias. But it's always there. And it's something mm -hmm. that they just have to deal with. And God, in this situation where your wife is being taken over slowly by an alien presence, it's like, yeah, there's no a MacBook is probably best yeah, in that scenario. Right. There's no there's no thinking your way through those kind of emotions, right? It's right, it's right. too deep. It's too too intense to not feel. You need like the platinum subscription to better help. <laughs> <laughs> now, Alia in this same scene, we have to remember is a fully trained reverend mother, and just like Jessica, she too is aware of the limitations of Mentats. This is an observation from her. Quote, She knew Idaho's blind spot. Every Mentat had it. They had to make pronouncements. This brought about a tendency to depend upon absolutes, to see finite limits. They knew this about themselves. It was part of their training. Yet they continued to act beyond self-limiting parameters. End quote. Yeah. I loved this. Such cool insight into Mentats, right? You mentioned it. It's part of their training, Leo, like you said. But there are some things you just can't think through or some feelings you can't stop feeling. And in this very scene, Duncan even pushes himself to have a computation even though he knows he's not in the right headspace. And on another level, I also loved that this quote reveals to us that these Mentats are presumably being used as like problem solvers, right? We use our technology to solve problems. Right. They thus respond in that way. They can't help but make pronouncements and provide the quote-unquote answers even in situations that might not be black and white, right? If 
I want an answer from my computer. Two plus two equals four. I don't want it to tell me like, <laughs> oh, but it could maybe not equal four. Like, I just <laughs> right, want an right, answer. Right. Yeah. And that's how Ollie is using Duncan in this scene. And it's seemingly that's how a lot of people use their mentats. It's like, just, I, ha I have a problem. Give me an answer. That's your job. Compute it. But of course, as we know, like any tool, there is a right and wrong way to use mentats. Jessica even says as much to Javid in the chapter in the anteroom. Quote, mentats share the fallibilities of those who use them, she said. The human mind, as is the case with the mind of any animal, is a resonator. It responds to resonances in the environment. End quote. Yeah. Really interesting stuff to see see the limits of mentats here. Yeah, I will I will point out that at, this is also the area in which Ali is thinking about mentats shaded by the Baron and his judgments of like mentats are dumb idiots and I need a twisted mentat or man, I wish I had a computer. And that also shows subtly the sort of biases of this Baron persona. Absolutely. Great point. Duncan also explains why this precise thinking is so dangerous, especially for mentats, right? Quote, he knew that precise thinking contained undigested absolutes. Nature was not precise. The universe was not precise when reduced to his scale. It was vague and fuzzy, full of unexpected movements and changes. Humankind as a whole had to be entered into this computation as a natural phenomenon. And the whole process of precise analysis represented a chopping off, a remove from the ongoing current of the universe. End quote. Oh, what a quote. It's so good. <laughs> and ultimately, again, it's, it's Duncan saying, I've been taught to calculate. I've been taught to take numbers and to come up with sums and, you know, differences and things like that. And ultimately... What we're asking about is humanity, which on a very small scale is as whimsical as, actually, I want to have lunch now. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to sign this document into law, but actually, oh, I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap and then dies from a hunter seeker, right? Like <laughs> right. human events are very hard to predict and precise thinking is thus difficult. It's just not the right tool for that job, which is where a mentat might rely more on like that intuitive leap and vague or general thoughts rather than say precise thinking or, yeah. you know, specific percentages of that's a prime computation. It's like, well, everything you're talking about is people. So maybe not, maybe it's not so guaranteed. Right. And on a meta level, this to me also reads as Frank being cheeky mm. and kind of being like, Hey, Anyone out there making predictions about what humanity is going to do next? Full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't predict what humanity is going to do next. That's the very nature of humanity. And to try to do so is a fool's errand. So to wrap up this first takeaway, let's summarize what we have learned from today's chapters about Mentats. Because we know they have these incredible computational abilities but we now know they aren't perfect machines either and shouldn't be treated as such. They face the same human emotions we all do, and these emotions can even cloud or impede their calculations. They tend to make pronouncements and depend on absolutes and finite solutions in a universe where, as Duncan says, this kind of precise thinking 
can't be applied to humanity as a whole. And they're only as useful as the people who use them. Right. So if used incorrectly, they may provide incorrect data or incorrect, quote unquote, answers to the problems that you're asking, asking them to fix. Right. Now, our second takeaway today, we wanted to take some time and talk about Alia. Yes. And specifically, all of Alia's chapters and all of people's observations about her tend to focus on this abomination, but specifically about more and more barren. Wow, there's more and more barren in her, right? There's more and more of this barren persona in her. Right. And yes, that's a big deal. The way she thinks, the way she talks, it's all changing. But there's something else that's happening, and it's really poignant, and it's really, I thought it might be easy to miss, especially if this is your first time reading the book. So we wanted to talk about it, and that is her blindness around Jessica and her blindness around what she should know. Yeah, exactly. And even beyond Jessica, another reason this is important to talk about is because we see another downside of abomination. Like when the Baron is pleading with Alia and asking to share control, he makes it sound like this really easy breezy thing, you know, just let, let me come in during some sexy time and uh, I'll be here as a protector and an advisor to you. It's a win-win. Nothing could go wrong. But as we've talked about in previous book clubs, characters in this story have made clear that other memories are not perfect and that abomination is actually a lessening. Right. Recall in that conversation that Leto had with the memory of his father, where at one moment, Leto's like, well, instead of being taken over by someone like the Baron, Dad, you do it. You take over. I'll give you the keys to the Honda. You drive. <laughs> right. And the memory Paul pulls away. He's like, no, no, no. Anything but that. Quote, Leto nodded to himself, sensing the enormous will force his father had required to withdraw, recognizing the consequences of failure. Any possession reduced the possessed to abomination. End quote. Hmm. And that last part is so important. Regardless of what the Baron is promising Alia here, we know that a possessed Alia is a lesser being, less than Alia and less than Baron. It's not cumulative two plus two equals four, as my MacBook would tell me. <laughs> right. In this instance, two plus two is lesser than the sum of their parts. Yeah. And there's a word for this, abomination. And that's why this word exists as the kind of curse it is and the kind of condemnation that it is. Exactly. So recall the preacher's warning for Alia. Quote, you who held the secret of duration in your loins have sold your future for an empty purse. End quote. Today's summaries highlight another reason why this kind of purse of abomination, so to speak, is such a bad deal. It comes with, it. its cost includes blindness to potentially helpful other memories, mm, right? Yeah. Baron focused on, I'll protect you from all these potentially malicious people. Sure, but what about all the helpful ones? And the first moment we get a sense of this is actually Duncan Idaho's Mintat computation that first reveals to him the nature of Ali's possession. And this is really like one of the first times that we're seeing Ali's possession called out by a character. Quote, Computation. A reflected Lady Jessica lived out a pseudo-life in Alia's awareness. Yet, 
Alia denied that reflection, risked her mother's life. Therefore, Alia was not in contact with that pseudo-Jessica within. Therefore, Alia was completely possessed by another pseudo-life to the exclusion of all others. End quote. And those final words are so huh, vital. Yeah. <laughs> to the exclusion of all others. So, from this computation, Duncan is like, oh, that's the nature of abomination. She has given up every other form of inner counsel by giving into the dominant persona. In other words, by accepting Baron, Alia lost Jessica. She lost Jessica's mother. She lost all of her other female ancestor personas that she could have had conversations with. She could have, like, talked to them and <laughs> heard them out, been counseled by them. And that's a crazy price. Right. And it seems to me like Alia was not aware that this was a price as part of Baron's admission mm -hmm. to kind of her consciousness. Yeah. You know, at the very least, Baron was not like, I'll protect you. You'll also lose all of the benefits of having like other personas in your consciousness. But like, no, I'll protect you. It's like, didn't you get fucking murked by a four-year-old? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm all you need, baby. I'm the best. It's like, well, you did get killed by me like a while ago, idiot. <laughs> uh, so it's it's tough. It's It's kind of a new level of tragedy because the deal Alia accepted was so misrepresented. Yeah, I mean, she seemed totally unaware that this would be a consequence of accepting the Baron's help. And we actually see this consequence on full display during that Duncan Irlan Alia scene at the start of today's reading. Multiple times in that conversation, Alia wonders out loud about Jessica's motives. For example, at one point she says, quote, My mother is part of this plot. For what other reason would the sisterhood send her back here at a time such as this? End quote. Right, yeah. And neither Duncan or Irlan call her out on this, but with everything that we're talking about, it's super suspicious that Alia's wondering about the sisterhood instead of just asking the Jessica within, right? Right. She wouldn't be so clueless, and she wouldn't be just thinking these thoughts out loud if she could ask Jessica within, if she was more in tune with all of the sisters in her other memory. Right. But of course, as we know, the Baron has now blocked off that access. Empty purse, y'all. Empty purse. <laughs> now later, when Jessica herself is approached by Javid, before they enter the Great Hall, we also get a sense of how poorly Alia understands her mother. Javid's out here, desperately trying to compel her to denounce the preacher, and fucking failing hilariously. Like... And it's not a bad instinct to say, oh, Jessica should be the one to denounce him, right? She holds a lot of sway. But why would she ever do that? Like, she has no reason to do that. And she recognizes that this is something that Alia put Javid up to doing. That he pushes the way he does and that he tries to manipulate her. Well, did you hear what he said about your son? Oh, he talked about your daughter. He talked about you. And the whole time, Jessica is so unperturbed by this. It is clear how little Alia understands her mother. And if Alia had access to her Jessica within, she could have very easily been like, what would convince you? But she can't. She can't 
have that conversation, right? Right. And there's even another instance in today's readings where talking to an inner Jessica memory would have actually helped Dahlia in the Great Hall scene with our boy Tagir, shouts to Tagir. Jessica acknowledges what Tagir represents here. Quote, Jessica found herself tempted to bind him to her own entourage, but Alia's reaction boded ill for brave Mohandas. There were also those signs which said this was the course expected of the Lady Jessica. Take a brave and handsome Trabador into her service as she'd taken brave Gurney Halleck. Best Mohandas were sent on his way, though it rankled to lose such a fine specimen to Faradin. End quote. Right, yeah. Saying that out loud makes you realize how silly of a plan that is. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's almost absurd that Alia would actually believe that her mother would be susceptible to this kind of trick. It reeks of the Baron's influence. It's so obvious and lacks any subtlety. Oh, you've been fucking Gurney Halleck and he's a handsome Trabador? Let me find another handsome Trabador. This will totally work. <laughs> yeah. Baron's out here like, it would work on me. Bring another <laughs> handsome boy around. I'd be tempted by that handsome boy. Right. It's like, dude, not everybody is as ruled by their carnal desires as you are, idiot. True. The real undercurrent here is that the Baron is just so horny. All the time. <laughs> it's like his dominant quality. <laughs> and, you know, we'll, we'll wrap up this takeaway. This isn't comprehensive. Like, there are a lot of these little moments sprinkled throughout this much of the book that we've covered. But the last kind of moment we wanted to touch on in this conversation is Alia's literally laughable attempt to move on after attempting to kill Jessica in the Great Hall. Like, the scene plays out the way it does because Alia's counting on Jessica acting with discretion. She's like, oh yeah, she's not going to make a big scene because she has all this poise and she's so regal and she's so... And when <laughs> Jessica calls her out, quote, be silence, you murderous abomination, <laughs> end quote. It catches her fully off guard. She's like panicking with little unconscious ticks and movements from the Baron's presence. And that's what Jessica focuses on. Jessica's like, oh, look, the Baron's presence, blah, blah, blah. But again, let's focus not on the positive here, the literal presence of the Baron. Let's look at the absence, the negative, the lack of a counsel of a Jessica within, with inner counsel, or even to our point earlier about this is lesser than the sum of the two parts. Even just Alia, with all of her Bene Gesserit skills and abilities as a preborn, wouldn't be making these sorts of mistakes around how to handle Jessica. Yeah. Right? Like, Alia as a fucking four-year-old was more subtle and brilliant then Alia now is the empress of the universe. And we see how empty this purse is. We see how bad of a deal this has been. All of the subtlety of Alia Atreides erased for the broad stroke, <laughs> horny, stupid thoughts <laughs> of Baron Harkonnen. Right. Right. Instead of taking the best of both people and combining them into a super being, it seems like it's taken the worst instincts of both. Right. And we can see how Alia continues to stumble time and time again in these chapters. Another quick note in this takeaway. I loved that you added this to our script because 
Beyond just Alia, this gives us some insight into the way the twins have been behaving thus far in the book as well. In particular, Leto. Like, Jessica has been sussing both of them out, right? Are my grandchildren abomination like my daughter has become? And you would think the reaction to that would be to be less weird about your other memory. Pretend like you're totally normal around your grandmother, nothing's fine, just a nine-year-old kid, nothing to see here. Right. When in fact, Leto and even Ganema do the opposite. They kind of lean in hard into the other memory. That conversation that Leto and Jessica have with each other, he's like bringing up fluttering lips and her Duke's rutting sensuality. Mm. He can bring that up as much as he wants. It's <laughs> True. Fine. Yeah. Tell me more, please. Tell me more. <laughs> this is Leto's way of demonstrating to Jessica that he has access to all of his lives. Right? He has access to her in his memory. He has access to her lover in his memory, her, his father. He has not, like Alia, succumbed to just one of those memories. He has not become possessed by just one. Right. Because as we know now, if he had, he wouldn't have access to Leto and Jessica and his father and his mother. And so it's interesting that this paints the twins' actions in a different light as well. They leaned in hard into the other memory as proof to their grandmother that they weren't abomination. Right. Exactly. Look at all the hats we can wear. You can tell we haven't, like, made that bad bargain, basically. Yeah. And all of this, this takeaway is really just to emphasize the cost of abomination. And I think it's worth keeping all of this in mind as we continue the book. Empty purse. Empty, empty purse. purse. You got some change, Alia? Nope. Just an empty purse. You wanted a gumball from a gumball machine? <laughs> it takes a quarter. And you don't have a quarter. <laughs> You have an empty purse. <laughs> Just an empty purse. Sad. <laughs> anyway, with all of that out of the way, we're going to take a final quick break. But then we are coming back with some hot and ready spice morsels Yum. for your mouth. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. Hope you're hungry. Because it's time for some spice morsels, let's chomp down. Our first spice morsel of the day is Alia assassination attempt. In this assigned reading, we get an extended conversation between Alia and Irulan discussing how an assassination attempt on Alia would look. And they go back and forth discussing the where and with what weapon that it might happen. Classic clue rules. In the library, with the candlestick. <laughs> where? Well... Alia says regarding where, quote, right here in the keep, Alia said, it's the place where I'd feel most secure and least on my guard, end quote. And you might be wondering, with the candlestick? No. We get this exchange, quote, well, they've not tried a hunter seeker in a long while, Irulan said. Wouldn't work in a crowd, Alia said. There'll have to be a crowd, end quote. Now their conversation moves on. They talk about the animals, but... If you heard our Road to Dune episodes, specifically part two, this might have caught your attention, and I think this is super neat. In our conversation in part two, we talked about chapters and scenes that were written by Frank Herbert for Dune and Dune Messiah that ended up being cut from the final versions. One of those scenes was a scene in which 
Alia received Spacing Guild navigator Edric, remember him, fishy boy Edric, <laughs> in her keep, and in which, fucking get this, he and his attendants attempted to assassinate her with a hunter seeker. Oh my god. Boom! Whoa! I love this. Alia's like, they're gonna try to kill me in that place that Frank wrote about. I don't know. I think it's so cool, this added layer of interest. As someone who knows more about the kind of behind the scenes and meta of Dune and the, these books that we love so much, I thought this was super cool. And maybe y'all caught it too. But if you didn't, there you have it. There you have it. No deeper cuts exist than that. Y'all want it deep cuts? <laughs> there it is. Next up, let's talk about Rajya, the movement of infinity. Love it. In today's reading, Duncan experiences that Paul-like vision, that almost prescient vision. And we get this passage that describes the experience. Quote, As Alia said guards, Idaho put a hand over his Tleilaxu eyes, trying to prevent the demanding involvement which swept over him. It was Rajya, the movement of infinity as expressed by life, the latent cup of total immersion in Mentat awareness which lay in wait for every Mentat. It threw his awareness onto the universe like a net, falling, defining the shapes within it. He saw the twins crouching in darkness while giant claws raked the air about them. End quote. So cool. So cool. This very much reads like the Adab, as we mentioned earlier, that demanding memory of the Bene Gesserits. Or, of course, like Paul's own prescient visions, his waking dreams. But it's a little bit different. As usual, the Dune Encyclopedia gives us some more details. And the Encyclopedia defines Rajya as, quote, The Song of the Sirens. It was the total immersion of the Mentat in the inferential consciousness. End quote. Right. Now, what's interesting is that the creators of Mentats, Albans, and his partner Plate, disagreed on the nature of this Rajya. Hmm. Plate thought of it as the pinnacle of Mentat achievement. But Alban saw it as a death trap. And the encyclopedia tells us that actually only 30% of Mentats who ever entered this Rajya state <laughs> ever reawakened. Jesus. So I don't know how y'all feel about it, but I'm leaning a bit more towards Alban on this one. <laughs> right. However, those 30% who did survive either had no memory of the entire experience or they described it as, quote, the most richly satisfying intellectual experience of their lives, end quote. And rumor actually has it that older mentats near the end of their lives actually intentionally sought out the Rajya as, quote, the most pleasant passing a human could be blessed with, end quote. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Our next morsel. Ferrets! Hey! <laughs> Just the actual animal. So, <laughs> from today's reading, Irulan starts us off by saying, quote, Oh, a small pet, say, trained to bite a specific victim, inflicting a poison with its bite. The house ferrets will prevent that, Alia said. One of them, then? Irulan asked. Couldn't be done. The house ferrets would reject an outsider, kill it. <laughs> you know that. End quote. Oh, uh, yeah, uh -huh. of course, the house fair. How could have we forgotten about the... 
What? <laughs> house Atreides has house ferrets? Oh employees God. who are ferrets? Per tradition, I whipped open the Dune Encyclopedia, excited to read all about these house ferrets. But alas, there's nothing written about oh, them. Oh, no. Ferrets is, ferret is only used as a verb in the encyclopedia, which is unfortunate. But hasn't stopped me in the past, and it won't stop me now. <laughs> I dove into etymology in the past, and... I'm diving into ferrets today. So, congratulations, listeners. You've successfully subscribed to Ferret Facts, where I share some <laughs> facts about ferrets that probably Frank researched. But who the fuck knows? Here we go. Factoids about ferrets in real history. Let's do it. From a real encyclopedia, not the Dune encyclopedia. From a re- well, from a website called ferretworld.com. Oh, my God. That's even better. <laughs> but, yes. Earliest evidence. Selective breeding of ferrets. 500 BCE, 2,500 years of ferrets, folks. Love it. They are super easy to domesticate because they're loyal as fuck to whoever or whatever raises them. In 1281 AD, a royal court had, get this, an official ferreter in the the books. Amazing. Whole job. (laughs) Training and running the ferrets of the royal court. Dope. Love it. Ferrets were used in the 20th century to pull cable. This is so fucking cute. To pull cables and wires through narrow conduits using literally little harnesses. Oh my god! Primary employers, telephone companies, and <laughs> airplane manufacturers. What the fuck? I'm building an airplane. Do you have <laughs> ferrets? I need some. <laughs> All I can imagine is a ferret in a tiny little yellow safety jacket. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Probably. Probably that exactly. Super fucking cool. Ferrets. Dang. Uh, And if any of that's wrong, because you know more about ferrets than I do, take it up with ferretworld.com, but also email (laughs) us. I want your ferret facts. Should I be spitting in ferrets' mouths? Yes. (laughs) Crucially. That's the question. (laughs) That's amazing. Also, Pixar, where is the movie about a ferret who helps connect America? Yes. By helping the telephone companies get off the ground. The movie writes itself. Or an airplane pilot who discovers a ferret as like his mechanical friend. Yes. And they build an airplane together. Oh, my God. Pixar. Ah! Get on it. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Missing out on some ferret possibilities there. Those long mice are beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Well with our morsels out of the way. For our next book club episode, you will have to read until page 298. Or, if you have a different version than us, the chapter ending on the sentence, quote, you may let go of Palimbasha now. He is dead. End quote. Oh, man. Rest in peace, Palimbasha. Yes, we barely uh, knew thee. We, I guess we don't know you yet. We barely but... knew thee. We haven't <laughs> met you yet. <laughs> we just haven't met you yet. <laughs> well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on lordparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, 
Whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. Uh, amazing stuff. I love geeking out about this like deep cut lore shit. And I think the takeaway from this takeaway is that everyone should read the instructions manual that comes with their MedPad package. <laughs> I know we all like to throw away our yeah. IKEA instructions and just figure it out, but you yeah, got to read yeah. this one. Also, when you order the Mentat, it comes with AA batteries. And it's like, where do I put these? Like, you it's know in the where. Menu. Yeah, you know where. <laughs> Intuitive leaps, folks. You can figure this out. It's not precise. Kind of approximate. <laughs>